Router to third. Fair ball. Moustakas across. And 29 years of frustration has ended. The Royals are going to the World Series. Good morning, and welcome to episode 557 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland.com, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Howdy. How are you? Okay. Can I? T- can we do a quick Play Index? Uh, yeah, we should do a, a quick Play Index. Good. I have one. Uh, it's a quick one. Um, yesterday, yesterday on Tuesday, uh, Tuesday on Tuesday, yesterday on Wednesday, which is to say on Tuesday, um, the Royals played a game that took two hours and 53 minutes or something like that, two hours and 55 maybe. And uh, I commented on this when it was happening. It seemed like a pretty big deal to me that there was a postseason game that finished in under three hours. And I have not looked, but how... I think it was the second one this this October, this postseason. Uh, I was going to ask you to guess. Oh, Okay, well, I knew the answer. So let's see here. I well, just for fun, then, because I, I uh, game length minutes, I'm going to set 180 or fewer. I guess I'll set 100. Yeah, 179 or fewer. Postseason games. Let's just do 2014. All right, we have that is the second one. You're right. That okay. So that is true. So let's try. What was the first one? Because I don't remember. I'll tell you in a second. Well, I've changed the now I've changed to 2013. How many do you think there were in 2013? I'll say three. There were eight. Wow. So let's keep doing this. Let's do a few years. Hmm. Uh, pick a year. All right. Let's go back to 2008. 2008. How many are you going to guess? Ten. I'll say eleven. Oh, five. Only five. Hmm. Okay. So 2013 looks like maybe it was an outlier. Pick another year. 2003. All right, 2003, there were 10. Uh-huh. Okay, let's do 1991. Okay. You want to guess? Sure, 1991, I'll say, well, there were fewer, fewer games. postseason games, yeah. So there were only two series plus a World Series. So there yeah. were only like uh, 20 games or 18 yeah. or whatever. And games were shorter back then, so that balances that out somewhat. I'll say... Seven. Six. All right, so let's go to 19... I don't know if 1952 will be in here. I don't know if times per game were recorded in 1952, but let's just try 1952. We know that it was only a World Series, so at most seven games. How many do you think? Um, how many games did the World Series go in 1952? Let me, uh, let me check. I have that right here. 1952 World Series went seven games. All right, I will say... Yankees, though, it was the Yankees. Hmm. <laughs> so... <laughs> I'll say... Seven. Six. Hmm, okay. Uh, let me see if there were any extra inning games in, in this World Series. There was! Aha! Was that there the was one? A, let me okay. check. I'll check. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to guess that it was. It, it went 11 innings. It was also 6-5. to five. Time of game, three hours on the dot! <laughs> <laughs> it was the only one that didn't make it. It was three hours on the dot. Wow, that's exciting. Shouldn't the be other one this year. The other one this year was... I think it was the Giants and the Nationals. It was. It was uh, game three. Oh, it was the game I went to. Mm. Uh, the Bumgarner-Doug Fister game, which makes sense. Uh-huh. Yeah. Interesting. So I wonder how much longer the commercial breaks in the postseason are. Do you think that's a factor 
Are they longer? Well, it's some part of a factor, sure. Although tonight's yeah. game, tonight's game was ridiculous. It was it was just about three hours through six. <laughs> and that there were every pitcher in the bullpen was used except that for... was no 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 that was before the seventh was the inning where four pitchers pitched for the uh-huh. Giants. Yeah. So it was three hours through six. It was three hours and uh, twenty. I think I looked at the time because I was tracking this closely. It was three hours and twenty one minutes through six and a half. Mm. Yeah, lots of pitching changes in that one. We will talk about that game, I guess. I will just go back to what we were talking about yesterday with the Royals' intimidation tactics and Jeremy Guthrie's T-shirt. He apologized for that T-shirt today, uh, Wednesday, twice on Twitter and also in a press conference with the media. So what does that do to our theory about the Royals using intimidation tactics. It definitely weakens it. It doesn't necessarily preclude it um, because uh, for for one thing, it might not. It's like sort of like when you're in court and the lawyer asks a leading question that is obviously meant to sway the jury and the uh, opposing counsel says, objection, and the judge says, ignore the fact that you heard those words. <laughs> we used that analogy very recently. Yeah, so it, it's like, yes. <laughs> did we? Yeah, <laughs> I used that for something. I don't remember what. Uh, it's like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the fact that he wore the shirt is not undone and apologizing right. for it doesn't undo it. But the other thing is just that once things get uh, into the kabuki of media baseball coverage, you lose, you sort of lose control of your message. You lose control of your strategy. And uh, so it's conceivable that this, this was, in fact, uh, their strategy, but that they just sort of got overpowered by the machine. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think that's unlikely. I think that, what, what did, did Guthrie forget? Is the leading <laughs> theory right now that Guthrie forgot that he was wearing the shirt? That could be because it's, I mean, it's hard to see the shirt as anything but a statement about the Orioles. So, I mean, it literally is a statement about the Orioles. So, I don't know how he could not think that he was saying something about them. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe he was just caught up in the moment or something. Anyway, it, uh, the, the apology did not, <laughs> did not lead to an Orioles comeback. There was another Royals victory, another Royals sweep. And another Royals one-run victory. Again, another 2-1 victory. And which is kind of interesting because the Royals, you'd think they'd be a good one-run team to the extent that any team is a good team in one-run games. The only real edge that teams seem to have in those games is a good bullpen. And of course, the Royals have that good bullpen. But they were 22-25 and 25 in one-run games this regular season. They were a losing team in one-run games. So you can't even say that they are winning all these one-run games because they are so well-built for one-run games. Or at least, if they are, it didn't work out that way during the regular season. But Can I just say I hate the one-run game as a metric for closeness? <laughs> Why? I hate just it. Because well, because cause if you're up by four in the ninth and you give up three because your bullpen sucks, you want a one-run game. Uh-huh. It, that doesn't mean it was necessarily close. If it were, what it should be is one run through seven. That's what we should do. We need to come up with a better closeness measure. Yeah, or you could just maybe just use average leverage leverage index or something. Yeah, for, for the game. Yeah. Anyway, the, you know what I was thinking. I tried to tweet this, but I couldn't fit it into a tweet, and I didn't know what my thoughts were to be honest. But 
I, we're going to hear, there's going to be columns written about how all teams should be built like the Royals, and we're going to hate those columns, right? Yes. But if the column simply said all teams should be built to play like the Royals or that all teams should play like the Royals or something like that, as the Royals have done in the last eight games, that would be legit. The fact is that the Royals have played extraordinarily, and they have played a style of play that seems um, like sort of idiot-proof if you could do it. It's not. Having a bullpen that pitches this well is extremely hard to predict, um, and having home runs and speed, which is what they've done, is hard to predict, and having uh, all your starting pitchers pitch well for five innings is easier than having them pitch well for seven innings, but it's still expensive to put together. So it's not easy. It's not as though Dayton Moore cracked the code for team building, um, but the style of play is kind of the platonic ideal for a postseason team. Wouldn't you kind of agree with that? I mean, this it is the exact execution that everybody wants from their team in October. The question is, is there anything you can do uh, beyond what teams are already trying to do to execute like that? And the answer is probably no. And so your column's probably pointless. But mm. it's sort of true. Yeah, sure. And I mean, the way that it has worked out, everyone coming into this series thought that there was a managerial mismatch that Buck Walter. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about that. Right. Had an edge over Ned Yost that this was the biggest gap between managers probably that any two playoff teams could have in a series. And as it turned out, you, you wrote a bit about it and I've thought a bit about it. And not only did Ned Yost's mistakes not really backfire, but he also didn't really make any or didn't make many obvious mistakes. He seemed to adjust not as a result of any criticism, I'm sure, uh, or, you know, maybe 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 someone in the front office uh, just, you know, spoke to him at some point. I know that in the uh, regular season, the day after he made that comment about how he couldn't pitch, I don't know, Davis in the seventh or whatever it was because he's not a seventh inning guy. The day after that, he switched. He did something different. He brought in a guy in an inning when he doesn't normally bring in a guy. And that seemed to suggest, or I listened to Jonah Carey's podcast with Sam Mellinger, and they talked about that, and Mellinger said that his impression was that maybe Yost had gotten a talking to of some sort from, from the front office, that that hadn't come from him, but that he went along with it, that he adjusted and used a, a couple of relievers differently a little bit in the, the tail end of the season. And that is what happened in this series, too. Herrera was used in the sixth twice. Uh, he has used those guys for two innings at times, Davis and Herrera. So that is what seems like a, a clear change. Yeah. So that is, I don't know whether it is his own initiative or whether someone talked to him about it, but either way, he didn't put his foot down. No, oh, it doesn't matter whether someone talked to him about it. I mean, right. I guess if I guess if somebody issued an ultimatum, I guess it would take some of his agency away. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't really matter. I mean, the fact is, and we talked earlier this year about his optimized batting lineup experiment, right? And he didn't stick yes. with it, but he did go to his 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 stat heads mm -hmm. and say, "Fine, screw it, give me the optimized lineup." And he did try it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so you know, he does. It does seem like he has some. You know, it, it seems like he has some productive communication with 
with that, that part of the organization, which is a really good thing. And it does, I mean, really, it's striking. He, I think it's fair to say in the last two games, there weren't that many managerial moves to, to compare these two guys against. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, as you alluded to, I wrote about uh, you know every, every move that Yost made in the third game and trying to figure out why hasn't this gap uh, benefactor in this series and there were a few reasons one is that there aren't that many moves that move the needle one is that you can make the wrong move and have it work out perfectly anyway um, and one is that even guys who we think of as making the wrong move make the right move a lot and guys who we think of as making the right move make the wrong move a lot and in game three for instance Yost um, by my tally made seven moves two of them were in my estimation wrong Two of them were, in my estimation, great, inspired. Two of them were kind of obvious and predictable, but he made them anyway. And one of them was too complicated for me to assess. And all seven of them worked out, which implies, or which uh, is a lot of, you know, that's kind of fortunate. A lot of times good moves won't make work out, and a lot of times bad moves won't work out. They all did, so that's one reason. But, um, you know, he did make, you know, five out of seven were, were really solid. And on the other side, Buck Showalter made the move that, um, you know, we've taken to kind of, I, th- I think it's the signature managerial, I don't want to say screw up, what, what's the word? It's like the, the signature manager, um, uh, like kind of third rail or something in this mm-hmm. particular postseason, the third time through the order uh, thing, where he left Wei and Chen in to go through the order the third time, and that's when the winning run came in. And um, I was... Uh, uh, I went back after just to kind of review what people were saying at the time. And some people were saying, guy, get him out, get him out, get him out. And they didn't. Um, but that seems to be something that he has. I don't know if he's changed his mind permanently or if he has changed his mind temporarily or if just circumstances happen to lead him to the to that decision. But what yesterday he pulled Guthrie, basically mm-hmm. before the third time through the order. And yeah. today he pulled Vargas uh, one batter into the third time through the order. And also, I should note that Chen, uh, even though he he went what turned out to be slightly too long, uh, he was left in basically only to face the two lefties at the top of the order. And then yeah. he was pulled immediately for the third time through the order. It sort of feels like the third time through the order has midway through this postseason become a kind of move that is accepted like I'm, we're seeing a lot more managers it happened tonight uh no it didn't happen tonight did it let me think um, tonight no, it, i mean tonight everybody sucked right uh, <laughs> guys got removed in the fourth both of the starters in yeah. the giants cardinals game yeah but even that one let me think when did shelby miller get pulled shelby miller got pulled didn't shelby miller get pulled immediately he pitched to the 18th batter didn't he and then he got pulled immediately so I he was so, allowed. Yeah, to, he went three and two thirds, I think. I think he went. I think he actually went to the end of the second time through the order. Matheny let him go there, and then the third time, uh, when uh, when Blanco came up, he went out and pulled pulled him and brought in Choate. So again, exactly twice through the order. Exactly twice through the order. So basically, we're looking at. I, it's only a sample of four, but the last four managers that I've observed have essentially pulled their pitcher exactly two times through the order plus or minus a platoon advantage so i wonder if that's just a thing that now is going to be postseason routine which would kind of be nice i i like it i don't think that i i don't think necessarily that i'm dogmatic about it but 
I do like it, and I think it, it does seem to make sense. We've been talking about it. This is our third postseason, Ben, if you can believe it. <laughs> wow. And we've been, we've been talking about this exact move for three postseasons. So I'd like to know how well that would work if everyone did it, because it, it worked out great for the Royals in this series. They have Herrera, Davis, Holland, and those guys, during the regular season, those guys threw fewer than half of the Royals' relief innings. The, the Royals' bullpen threw 460 innings in the regular season, and those guys threw about 200, a little over 200. In the postseason, the Royals' bullpen has pitched 35 innings. Those three guys have pitched 25 and two-thirds. So they've gone from pitching less than a half to less than half to about three-quarters of the Royals' relief innings. And I wonder how long that's sustainable, because if you if you use that sort of usage during the regular season, you'd have all those guys pitching, I don't know, 110 innings or something. That would be the, the sort of pace that they would be on. And I wonder whether you can do that with guys, especially at the end of a six-month season or seven if you count spring training, can you suddenly start using them like... Mariano Rivera in 1996 and have them pitch as well as as they did during the regular season. Obviously, it it worked for these three guys in this series, but I wonder whether that would work always, whether it would work sometimes, and whether just as often they would be less effective. You're talking about just in the postseason? Yes. I, th- I think it would probably... I think you can get away with it. I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, it, it's not, it's, for some team, it would backfire, but for the most part, you're talking about, there's two factors here. One, tons of off days. There's just mm-hmm. so many off days. And, I mean, there's one three-game stretch you have to get through in the NLCS. But otherwise, you're never pitching more than two days in a row. And second, second thing, which is sort of related to that, is that we are watching the extreme freak show postseason. Most of the time, you have a blowout every third game, or you have a 5 nothing game, or a 7-2 to game every third game. This is really as stressed, what we have seen is as stressed as bullpens can get, and they're, they've been pretty fine. So I, I would guess that it's, it's okay. It's obviously not sustainable in the, pre, in the regular season. Mm-hmm. Um, there are too many high-leverage innings for the number of high-leverage pitchers you have, so you're forced to go with your... Um, you know, slightly less effective options because it's a marathon. But I I don't think that it would generally be a problem. I mean, we haven't seen it be a problem for any team yet, have we? Have we seen a team run out of pitchers once? Not run out of pitchers. I guess you could argue that pitchers have been fatigued. Maybe some of the Cardinals guys who got hit today, I mean, I don't know whether they were or not on the broadcast. Harold Reynolds was saying that he thought that Guys like Marco Gonzalez and Seth Manus were were tired, were fatigued, and Manus was, you know, leaving his sinker up, and Gonzalez didn't have great control, and who knows whether that is fatigue-related or not, but but maybe that's what that would look like, I guess. Can I take one uh, one parting shot? This is a very subtle one. It's sure. not a big one. But I actually didn't like bringing in Herrera today. Why is that? Uh, so he brought him in in the sixth, and uh, so he knew he, Herrera, Herrera, he knew Herrera was going to have to pitch more than one inning. And you know he's trying to lock down the series. He figures, eh, I got a lead, end it now. You know, don't 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 let the Orioles drag the series out. 
But I think when you're up three games to nothing, one of the advantages that you have is that you don't have to act desperate in any way. And the problem with bringing in Herrera in the sixth is that, sure, if it works, it's great. You, you, end, the, you end the series. That's good. But if I were up 3 nothing, what I would mainly be thinking about in these situations is what happens if things go wrong. And if things go wrong in that situation, um, Herrera might throw 30-some pitches. And you might have to go to Wade Davis in the seventh because Herrera might be in a jam. And then Wade Davis might throw 30 pitches. And you've still got a game tomorrow. Uh, and it'll be the third day in a row they've pitched, and you figure in that scenario, Davis and Herrera are unavailable or certainly tired. And I just felt like that was a situation where Ned Yost put himself in a position, if things didn't go as planned, which you should always be planning on things not going as planned, if things didn't go as planned, he could cost himself two games. And that's, if I'm up three games to nothing, all I'm thinking is, okay, can this move cost me two games? Because the odds are overwhelming that the Royals are going to win this series. You don't have to do anything radical at that point. They're going to win. And whether you win in four or five, four is nicer than five. But at the end of the day, it's the same. What you really, really, really don't want is to go back to Baltimore because you did something in game four that you know cost you severely in game five. So mm-hmm. I thought that that was a situation. Now, so the situation specifically was that um, he had just pulled Vargas. I think there was a runner on. It was a one-run game. The righties were coming up in the middle of the order. And that's a great time to bring in Herrera. So right. It you, was it, Pierce Jones Cruz coming up. Exactly. So if you told me Herrera pitches uh, the next four batters, because the fifth was young, or the fourth was young, if you, if you told me that Herrera comes in in the sixth, pitches to the next four batters, but then basically Finnegan or Fraser gets the seventh, yeah. or maybe the eighth against the soft part of the lineup, that's fine. I'm just saying I don't want to put myself in a position where Herrera or Davis is going to be called on to pitch 30-plus pitches in that inning and or in that outing. And I this is sort of how I feel when teams bring in their closer for work in a four- or five-run lead. What always scares me, what terrifies me, and what seems to sometimes happen is that if the closer doesn't have his best stuff that day, well, he's your closer, you're not relieving him until the lead is blown. Because mm-hmm. what happens if he gives up two runs? Well, now it's a save situation. You've got to keep your closer in. And that's how you end up with Eric Gagne pitching 49 pitches, and he can't pitch for the next three days. And so, the very old reference. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, uh, so anyway, that's, that's what I... Now, I, like, I, like I said, I think that bringing in Herrera in that situation, with the understanding that Fraser's going to bridge to Davis or that Finnegan's going to bridge to Davis would be great. I just don't think that Yost had that in mind, and I don't think most managers do or would. Yeah, or even the day before when he brought in Fraser for the sixth, that was the heart of the order, and then Herrera got the seventh, which was the bottom of the order, and maybe it would have been better to flip them. Maybe it would have been better to use Herrera first against the, the tougher hitters and then Fraser in the seventh against the weaker hitters, but that's not really something you see anyone do ever um and there was uh there was a bad bunt in game four but it was not one that yost called according to him it was in the the first inning when the first couple guys got on and then lorenzo kane sacrificed right away of course that led to the two runs or at least it didn't preclude the two runs from scoring who knows maybe more than two runs would have scored but uh yost said that kane did that on his own didn't totally hate that by the way why? Because the the shadows 
<laughs> no, but I will now incorporate. <laughs> I will now incorporate that into my math. I didn't. I wouldn't say I liked it, but I didn't totally hate it. I think that first and second with nobody out is a. If if there's a good bunt, it's usually that one because, uh, as you know, my my opinion. As you know, you might know my opinion of small ball techniques is that if they make it so that you don't need a hit to score a run they're much more justified to me than if they simply require you to still need a hit. Because if you bunt a guy to second, well, it still takes a hit to bring him in. And if you get a hit, the odds are that that guy was going to score in the inning anyway. So you've probably accomplished nothing. But uh, it's hard to get a hit. And the three bases, once a guy gets on first, you generally have three outs and three bases. And if you're just going one base per out, you're not going to get there in time. Um, However, in this situation... Uh, you make it so that you don't need a hit to score a run. You also make it so that another guy is in scoring position. Uh, you're advancing two guys for the cost of one out instead of one guy for the cost of one out, which uh, makes it obviously twice as valuable in a sense. Um, in a sense, I know it makes it not twice as valuable in another sense. Uh, Kane is a guy who could conceivably bunt for a hit uh, because he's very fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for all those reasons, it, it doesn't strike me as absurd. I mean, he he did a push bunt, you know. A lot of times, a, a to me, a push bunt is, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's almost like a safety sacrifice. You're, you're, you know, you might get a hit out of it. It's, it's not a, it's not implausible that you end up with a much better situation. And, you know, Kane was uh, batting against a righty, um, so he was not as good a hitter as his overall line might suggest in that situation. In the uh, shadows. In the shadows, um, and you know. I don't know that I don't know how much truth there is to this, but you have to have the, you have to sort of feel like the Royals have a feeling that if they get too early, then it's just the, the clock ticks and they're going to probably be able to outweigh you, which is exactly what they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they made a bunch of good defensive plays as usual, a bunch of impressive catches, and and then they won again. Um, so I looked up some numbers and I got some numbers from ESPN stats and info about the percentage of innings pitched by relievers in the postseason this year and in, in the past many years compared to the regular season. So if I told you that the average percentage of innings pitched by relievers in the regular season in the wild card era, and this actually hasn't changed much at all since the beginning of the wild card era. It was almost the same this year as it has been overall, partially probably because pitchers are facing fewer batters to get those innings pitched now that offense is down. But anyway, if I told you that the average percentage of innings pitched in the regular season by relievers is 33.7, and I will tell you that because it's true, what would you guess the postseason percentage has been over the same span? The percentage of innings pitched during the postseason that have been pitched by relievers yes relative to 33.7 in the regular season i i would guess not much higher i would guess um like 37 percent. yeah it's uh 36.2 over the entire wild card era it hasn't actually increased all that much if you look at just the the last 10 years it's 37 percent um and it fluctuates from year to year there hasn't really seemed to be any clear trend like 2011 was the the Tony La Russa year when he did it a lot that year the percentage was 40.7 in 
in 2007. I don't remember why that year was high, but that was 41.2. 2004 actually was the highest ever at 43.1. So this year, after today's games, and and in the Cardinals-Giants game, relievers pitched the majority of that game, so that raised it a bit. This year's percentage is 39.9. And I wonder what the optimal rate would be. I guess, I mean, if if you took a starter out after five every time, then you'd you'd have relievers pitching 44% of the time or, or more, I guess. You'd have the occasional extra inning game, so that'd be 45% or something. Or less because so, you'd have the occasional not playing in the bottom of the ninth. But yes. Yes, true. Uh, so that would that would be higher than it has been in any individual postseason, significantly higher than it has been overall. I wonder what the optimal rate is. So it's basically 40% this postseason, and there have been a bunch of extra inning games, and of course there was an 18-inning game, and that'll skew things slightly. But would you guess that the optimal rate is higher than the 36.2 it's been over the wildcard era or the 37% it's been over the last 10 years or so? Well, I don't know what the number would be. I think this falls under, you know, I know it when I see it kind of, um, but it seems like relievers have been somewhat underutilized. Um, so something more than that, but mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know, 42. Uh-huh. And it Depends somewhat on the makeup of the teams in the postseason every year. Maybe you have particularly strong rotations or something, or weak bullpens. But but yes, I would guess that it is a little higher than it has been, but maybe not much higher than it is right now. Um, okay, so Royals are in the World Series. Who knew? Anything on Giants-Cardinals? Two things, uh, two quick things. Uh, one... Uh, I hope you haven't read this yet. Matt Trueblood, Matthew Trueblood, uh, suggested it or asked me a question. I took that question to Zachary Levine. Zachary Levine uh, took the challenge and wrote about it. Oh, yes. uh, I have read that. Ah, you can't Sorry. guess. <laughs> well, you can you can tease it. The, well, it's on BP right now. It's a free article. It's up. Mm-hmm. Go read it. Uh, but the question is, if Yadier Molina is incapable of swinging a bat, if he swings a bat, it just might kill him. But mm-hmm. he can be Yadier Molina behind the dish. He can do everything that Yadier Molina does that's non-bat related. And the alternative is A.J. Pruszynski or Tony Cruz. Uh, should the Cardinals start him? Is he more valuable? And uh, I think Zachary handled extremely well. Uh, detailed, insightful, interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, twists and turns. Uh, and uh, and a, a good surprising answer. Surprising. Depends if you're expecting the answer that it was. Uh, <laughs> so that's a good piece. Were you surprised by the answer? Yeah, a little bit. Or at least how clear it seemed to be. I agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, uh, with Adam Wainwright starting on Thursday, I just have, for the last three or so days, I've just kept on thinking about this question. And I tried to ask Doug, but I phrased it so poorly, and he kind of answered it, but I just didn't answer it, ask it well enough to really get a good answer. But the, the question that I just keep thinking is, uh, is there any symptom of bad mechanics that couldn't just as easily be a symptom of injury and is there any symptom of injury that couldn't just as easily be a symptom of bad mechanics because it seems to me that a huge question uh, for Wainwright for us in knowing what to expect from Wainwright is is it indeed just mechanics or is it injury if it's injury then there's no hope if it's bad mechanics heck that's like two second fix a lot of times 
Uh, it's just about getting that mechanics back. And so I, I've been trying to figure out whether there's anything. And um, and I don't know the answer. But uh, Mike Kruko said something very interesting on the Giants broadcast during Wainwright's performance that John Miller uh, recalled tonight. And uh, I think that it does sort of answer this, or it might sort of answer this. And what Kruko said, and Kruko had elbow injuries in his career, so he knows he knows elbow injuries. He said that it is when you have a, a bad elbow, it's very, very hard to snap off, to throw a lot of curveballs, throw a lot of sliders. It's uh-huh. just painful. It's not what you would choose to do. If you were injured, that's probably not what you would do. And Wainwright has been doing that. They've been bad, sort of, and his fastballs have been bad. And all, he's been doing all these, that more, hasn't he, I think? He's been doing that more, exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. That's, that's been sort of the defining, one of the defining things about his performance is that you know, his fastballs have been up and terrible, but he's been throwing more breaking balls maybe because the fastballs have been up and terrible. And so if he were hurt, then you might think that he would avoid those. And if it were mechanics that were making his command be off, then you might think that he would go to those. And so that's not conclusive. That doesn't rule out the possibility, as you and I think, that he's um, you know, going to have this horrible moment where his Tommy John ligament explodes out of his arm. But... Um, it is a clue. It is an interesting clue. And it does kind of make me think uh, that Wainwright, I, it makes me trust Wainwright a little more when he says it's mechanics and not, not injury. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems reasonable. Although, yeah, well, he also, I think, said that it was mechanics before the first or one of his previous postseason starts and that he had straightened them out or he thought he had during a bullpen session. And that didn't seem to be the case in the game. And then he has now had another encouraging bullpen session. So who knows whether that will translate. He said that he is very confident going forward, was his quote. Of course, I guess you would probably say that regardless, or you wouldn't want to say that you weren't confident. Um, yeah, bad, bad mechanics, it's not like bad mechanics are automatically going to get fixed. It's just right. they're going to get fixed more often than devastatedly injured <laughs> arm is going to get fixed. Yes. And I looked at the Pakoda odds for this game, and even though Pakoda doesn't know that Wainwright is possibly dealing with something that could really uh, make him much worse than the stats say he is, the Giants are still a 60-40 favorite in this game with Bumgarner going at home. No Molina, no Molina, home yeah. field, and, uh, and yeah, Bumgarner. Yeah. So. I, by the way, speaking of Pakoda odds, I finally we've been running daily, uh, you know, per game Pakoda odds. I finally got around to running the series Pakoda odds uh, today, and uh, and uh, you know how we thought that the Orioles and the Royals series was like really close, and it seemed sort of hard, and we used things like Buck Showalter to decide who to, to who to pick. Uh-huh. Um, in fact, it is as we said, Pakoda had it fifty point five to forty nine point five in the Royals' favor, huh. but. I mean, really, like, if you thought this is a coin flip, this was a coin flip. Yeah, wow. I mean, I I saw other sources simulating the series that said different things. I know that uh, Fangraphs had the Royals heavily favored in the series, I believe. And then Dan Simborski at ESPN had the, had the Orioles, uh, like, 57% to win or something like that. So... Mm. I guess it depends on your methods and your projection systems. But, yeah, I thought it was very close. And and it kind of was, in a, in a way, or it seemed like it was. Not, not the final results, but the games themselves. 
Okay, so uh, watch the Giants and the Cardinals today. Hope that if you're if you're not rooting for either team in particular, hope that they win just so that we don't have four full days without baseball before the World Series starts. I will be flying to Kansas City for the World Series for a couple games. So I'm absurd. looking forward to that. What, a, what an absurd <laughs> use of money. <laughs> you don't think that my my writing will be much better because I'll be sitting in the post-game press conference getting the quotes that every other writer who's there gets. Can't wait to read your tweets about barbecue. Just <laughs> dying to find out uh, if the barbecue is any good. I will not be one of those people. Okay, uh, so that's it for today. Please support our sponsor, the Baseball Reference Play Index, by going to baseballreference.com using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We will maybe have a day or two without baseball here at the end of the week, so send us some questions at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Maybe we will get to those. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash effectivelywild, where a lot of listeners who are also Photoshop artists are making Photoshops of how sweep it is or photoshopping grooms <laughs> into pictures of the royals or yoast into pictures of things so that's fun and hey ben uh, you know what yeah. you know what goes you know what goes well with kansas city barbecue what a nice cup of sweep tea <laughs> all right we will end on that note we'll be back tomorrow